Okay, well, let's jump in then on uh, our class today. Uh, I think I have the title as Building God's Kingdom. Is that right? Is that book title in there? Yeah, um, I'm going to, it's not necessarily not that, but I think more, more what I'm going to talk about today is just an overview of the kingdom of God um, and how we're meant to understand the kingdom of God and how we can see the kingdom of God um, in in our lives. I think those are, uh, well, let me, let me just say one other thing, I guess. One of the things I've noticed in North America, especially, um, but I think it's probably a Western civilization thing, is the idea of the kingdom is a really hard reality for us to latch on to. Um, in Christianity, this, this picture of the gospel has gotten really big, but along with it, the king, kingdom language, this idea of, of kingdom has kind of fallen by the wayside. Um, and so this, this class is a little bit of a, um, hopefully kind of a correction course so that we can see the importance of this um, reality for us in, in Christianity. Um, and we can kind of walk into it together. Uh, okay, let's jump in. Um, the inauguration of the kingdom of God on earth began in the incarnation. John the Baptist called to Israel to repent because the kingdom of God was at hand, Matthew 3, 2. Then Jesus himself says the kingdom of God is at hand when he begins his ministry on the earth in Mark 1, 14. The kingdom of God is arguably the primary message of Jesus through the gospel writers. Every gospel uses this phrase, some much more than others, but its consistency tells us that it's not merely a contextualization or a phrase in order to contextualize, but that it is a truth of the gospel. It is in fact called the gospel of the kingdom. And this is why we can't lose some language and uh, and keep others. We have to hold the gospel of the kingdom together. So today, we need to understand what the kingdom is, how the kingdom manifests itself, and whether it could help us to come to terms with one way that we could understand God's presence with us. Okay, this is why I think it's of such value is because to say that the kingdom of God is present is to mean that God is present in some way. And so his presence with us through his kingdom is something that we need to latch on to. Also, sorry, I'm going to mute you there. There we go. We will also address why evangelical Christianity has been drawn to gospel language instead of language about God's kingdom. If we favor gospel proclamation to the proclamation of the kingdom, it has a more significant impact on us than just the words we use. I think it also impacts the way we believe. Uh, and as I said a moment ago, it is the gospel of the kingdom, not gospel or kingdom or gospel versus kingdom. They're not opposed, nor is it one or the other. It's actually uh, together, always meant to be together. The understanding of the kingdom of God uh, begins in the Old Testament. If we look back to the book of Daniel, we see a prophetic vision by Daniel where he saw the Son of Man stand before, standing before the Ancient of Days. 
Daniel 7, 13 and 14 says this, I saw in the night vision and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. From this and other prophecies like it, Israel expected to have a king come and be given dominion over all things and rule the world as its king. And Israel believed that this meant that they would be the prized people in this kingdom they would be set up above the rest. Rome, Babylon, and all other kingdoms would perish under him, and all people would serve him or be destroyed. This was the type of king that Israel was waiting for. Hearing that now, imagine the faith of Simeon, who sees the king, the savior of Israel, in that tiny baby in Luke chapter 2. Everything he heard from his religious upbringing and Israel's culture was different than what he held in his hands in that moment, and yet he could see it. He saw the true king in that tiny frame. He saw that Christ's kingdom would be worldwide and that all would bow before him. Strength, courage, and power are the words that Israel attributed to the Son of Man in Daniel's vision. Then Jesus came in the most meek, humble, and lowly way possible. It was far from what was expected. The gospel of the kingdom was not what Israel had anticipated for so many years. And the reason for that is when they heard words like strength, courage, and power, they had a very specific way they thought that was going to be walked out. So when Jesus comes meek and humble and lowly, they didn't correlate those two as the same. But in the gospel of the kingdom... That's exactly what strength is. It's meekness. Power is in humility. Courage is in lowliness. The gospel of the kingdom was a counter-cultural way to both the world and to Israel. Now in the New Testament... The statement, the kingdom is at hand, is used 39 times in the Gospel of Matthew. And it's not used at all in some of the other Gospels. Why? Well, because the Gospel of Matthew was written with the primary intent of proclaiming Christ to the Jewish people. And for them, as we've just seen, the kingdom of God is a primary part of their story. The Jewish people were expecting a king, and that king had arrived. It was Jesus. He is the promised king they'd always been waiting for. He is the same son of man of which Daniel saw in a prophetic vision. The purpose of Matthew's gospel is to explain the present state of Christ's kingship. 
The kingdom is at hand, remember. Not just the kingdom is coming or that the kingdom will come by Jesus, but the kingdom is here, according to Matthew. Now, if Matthew's account is the only gospel, or is the only gospel that used kingdom language at all, then we can conclude that it was merely a metaphor, helping the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to see Christ rightly. But that isn't the case. The other gospels also use kingdom language consistently, which reveals that the gospel of the kingdom cannot be ignored or simplified to Jewish contextualization. It must instead be something that permeates our theology, our thoughts, and our prayers, just as Jesus taught, it, taught us. Remember that in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus taught the disciples, all of his disciples, including us, how to pray. And in that prayer, he says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Even the Gospel of John, which uses the phrase kingdom of God the least of all the four Gospels, still gives this essential theological understanding a place of priority in the teaching of Jesus. For example, in John 3, where Jesus and Nicodemus discuss salvation, Jesus introduces Nicodemus to a brand new way of thinking. He explains the idea of being born again for the first time. And what does he say is the purpose and the result of this new birth? It was to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus, in this one statement alone, this one discussion with a teacher of Israel, Nicodemus, makes understanding the kingdom of God of significant importance. The kingdom is what we are born into. It is the reality of our new creation. We are born with different citizenship. Citizenship to the kingdom of God rather than man. When you read through the Gospels, it becomes clear that the kingdom of God could be the primary message of Jesus. It's so central that Matthew and Luke call the gospel that Jesus proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom. For this to impact us, though, we must understand what Jesus means when he speaks of the kingdom of God. Simply knowing that Jesus talks about it isn't actually enough. We know that he doesn't mean what Israel thought he meant. They were right to assume a king was coming. They were right to believe that he would have dominion and that all people must be a part of his kingdom or perish. But how that happened and what that looked like, they did not understand. It is evident in the Gospels that when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, it is God's reality and it has two components. The first is the present reality. And the second is the future reality. In the present reality, we know 
that through the teaching and works of Jesus, the kingdom has begun on the earth. Which is why we see and experience things that could only happen in Christ's kingdom. And we're going to talk about what those things are later. But there is a future to the kingdom of God. When time will be brought to an end. This is the age to come. This is what will be inaugurated at the second coming of Jesus. So we can only conceive of the kingdom of God if we consider it in the context of mystery. Because the kingdom of God is now and not yet. There's language that people use to try to explain this. Present future is one of those. There's also, as I just said, now and not yet. There is also uh, simply first and second. Uh, there is present age and age to come. I'm just giving you these so you, when you hear other people talk about it, you, you hear that it's the same thing. And then there is um, what we know only a portion of portion, and fulfillment. So the kingdom has to be understood in both of these ways simultaneously. Present and future. Now and not yet. First and second present age and age to come, portion and fulfillment. So when the Old Testament prophets looked forward and saw the Messiah's coming, they saw him coming as the completion. They believed that God finished the work of his kingdom in one fell swoop, in one moment, one battle, it was a time when the Messiah would come and would rescue all of Israel back to itself, to himself, and end the king's tyranny who had sat over them for so long. In that one moment, there would be freedom. There would be peace. There would be a new Davidic king on the throne over all the earth. To bring some explanation as to why Israel and the prophets believed that all of this was going to happen at one time, some have called their type of prophetic um, periscoping, okay, is the language that some scholars or some uh, even some prophetic voices give to it. Periscoping can be defined as the immediate timing of prophetic visions of the future. So uh, imagine it this way. If you were to do this sort of thing as we believe the Old Testament prophets did, you would look through the lens that God is giving you to see something in the future. And you would see these mountaintop moments coming in your life and coming into view all at once. 
and you assume the timing is held together. That these, all of these events, this, this freedom, this coming of Jesus, this, this new establishment, this fulfillment, all of it, you, they all saw it as one big thing. And the reason for that is because they just saw the peaks of the mountains, but they ignored the possibility of valleys between the peaks, of smaller peaks outside of their view. They assumed that God gave them the entire picture instead of what they needed in that moment. So if it's not um, obvious, be very careful prophetically. If you believe the Lord has shown you something or you've seen something, be extremely careful with how you apply that and what you think that means. And the reason for that is that even the Old Testament prophets got it wrong. So what they saw was true, but the, even their view of what they saw, God was giving them a picture of the reality that was going to happen, not actually seeing the reality itself. So he let them see a picture of what was coming that made sense to them, that they were then able to encourage Israel with, but they immediately thought, oh, this is all happening at once. Maybe this isn't in my lifetime. It seems really close. Uh, this is the type of person the Savior is going to be. And they started applying all of these things to this vision that was just wrong. And we see Israel go in a wrong direction because of it. When we have seen something or we believe God's given us prophetic in some way, we have to be extremely careful how we apply that. The amount of gaps you will automatically fill are substantial. So just go into those moments knowing that. Ask for the carefulness of the Lord. Ask for help deciphering what's actually being said. So back to what we're talking about. Though we know it did not happen as Israel thought it would, we must not let that cause us to forget that it did happen and that it is still currently happening. See, the part that they didn't understand is that it would not be complete in a single moment. Do you remember earlier in the year when we spoke about time and about how God operates outside of time because of his transcendence? We dis uh, when discussing this, we talked about how we should come to see Christ's passion, his death and resurrection, as something that transcends time. We should use this same way of thinking to understand the kingdom of God as well. This means that it is true that Christ has won the battle against sin and death and inaugurated his kingdom already. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us, or, or says this, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? For sin is the sting that results in death. And the law gives sin its power, but thank God, he gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. Right now, the Davidic king sits on the throne at the Father's right hand. Victories over sin and death and his victory, sorry, he is victorious over sin and death, and his victory is 
eternal. It's outside of time. It cannot be measured or applied practically. And because of that, we feel the limitations of that kingdom on us currently inside of time. We are now at this moment living under the rule and reign of the eternal king, Jesus Christ, but are still in the limitations of time and space that have not had that victory fully applied to it yet. We are in the now and not yet. We are in the state of in-between, between the first and second advent of Christ. We live in this present age, awaiting the age to come. Of course, knowing all of this still has not yet answered the question, what is the kingdom? Uh, In my past, and I know I've shared this before, there was a charismatic understanding of the kingdom. The charismatic tradition would usually understand the definition of God's kingdom to be synonymous with how it manifests itself miraculously. So for a charismatic or likely a Pentecostal person, the kingdom of God is about the miraculous. That's not entirely wrong, but it's only part of the answer. And it's not how pretty much all of the other traditions of the church would describe the kingdom of God. What we must do to find the answer to our question is to look to Holy Scripture. And there, in its pages, we can rightly see the fullness of its manifestations on the earth. It would seem to me that scholar William Barclay is right when he says that the definition for the kingdom of God is found in the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So to help us understand all that Jesus was saying in the Lord's Prayer when he taught it to his disciples, we need to understand something about Jewish communication uh, and a specific style called parallelism. Okay, parallelism, maybe I'll write it up on the board, erase this. Parallelism. Anyone who's done biblical studies has probably come across this as it's very prominent, probably the most prominent way that Jewish uh, songs and much of the scriptures are written. Uh, A lot of scriptures in song or poetry are written this way. So one of the primary places we see this used is in the Psalms. A Jewish composer would write his point in the first line and then raise the same issue again in the second line, but he would amplify his point or maybe explain or expand his point, um, uh, the meaning of the first line through the second line. So here's a couple examples. Uh, Psalm 46, verse 1. God is our refuge and strength. Line one, God is our refuge and strength. Line two, 
a very present help in trouble. So what does this tell us? That when we talk about God being our refuge and strength, the psalmist wants us to understand that that means God is present, helping us when we're in trouble. Really simple one. I tried to use kind of the most simple to kind of kick it off for us. God is our refuge and strength, point one. The explanation, point two, a very present help in trouble. Uh, Psalm 23 does it slightly different, but you'll see the consistencies. Psalm 23, verses one and two. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Point one. Okay. Point two. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. So he kind of flipped it on this one where refuge and strength may be a little vague. And the second line is to explain and to make it very clear what refuge and strength is saying. In the second one, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Pretty straightforward. What do we mean by that? What does the psalmist mean by that? Well, then he gives us a, an expanded view using much more uh, poetic language. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. So another use of parallelism, just a flip of that. So if we apply the concept of parallelism to the Lord's Prayer, which uh, scholars would pretty consistently agree is kind of what's happening uh, in Jesus's uh, way of teaching. But for today, we're going to focus on this one line. Your kingdom come, point one. Point two, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If we read it this way, we have a definition for what the kingdom is according to Jesus. The kingdom of God is a society or a, uh, a, not necessarily a location, but a group in some way on the earth. Okay, your will be done on earth. Group on earth where God's will, your will, is done just as it is in heaven. If we hold this as our definition, then we also know that this is something that we probably have ever only ever known in part. 
It's not like we've walked down the street and literally just experienced a perfect, a perfect experience of heaven. So where God's will is done perfectly in heaven, the request for the kingdom is that he does that here in these moments on earth. So your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So I want you just to take a minute to consider this. Because though we've only known it in part, the likelihood is we have experienced the kingdom. We have known it. And maybe in ways that we haven't always given credit to what it actually is that's happening. So just consider these questions for a moment. You don't have to write anything down. I just want you to consider them. So we'll start with more on the charismatic Pentecostal side that I was raised in. Have you ever seen someone physically or emotionally healed? Have you ever experienced physical or emotional healing? Have you ever had received, have you, have you ever, sorry, received healing of any sort? How about, have you ever felt the presence of God before? Have you ever had any, any interaction with the miraculous? Well, how about something else that maybe doesn't seem as miraculous? Doesn't maybe, um, we don't automatically think this is the kingdom of God at work in our lives. Have you ever seen someone's life be transformed through salvation? Have you ever seen it in someone else's life? Have you ever experienced it in your own? Have you ever watched the gospel, the good news, change someone? Have you, in any part of your life, been transformed by Jesus? Or have you seen God transform others around you? If you have said yes to any of these things, and this is only just the beginning, then you can honestly say that you have seen the kingdom of God at work and you have been in it to see it. And the miracle and blessing of it all is that all of this is still only the beginning. This is just the first steps. This is the tippy-toe stuff of the kingdom. Once again, I'd like you to take a moment and continue to think about something. I want you to think about all that you've learned so far about God and about who you are in Christ. Think about the gift of salvation that you've received. How God removed everything that separated you from him. Think about some of our classes where we talked about the fact that we can know a more significant measure of God's presence today than even those of the Old Testament could. That God has increased his closeness to us through Christ and by the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. Now consider that everything I've just said about the closeness of God is still, at best, only a glimpse. It's the smallest measure of what we will receive upon the second coming of our king. It will be a kingdom 
where there is no sickness, where there is no pain, and where there is no death. There will be no weeping, nor no sorrow. Our hearts will be made entirely whole. Well, these things that I'm describing are things that we can only imagine, but Christ assures us that they are true and they are coming. G.E. Ladd, in his book, The Gospel of the Kingdom, says this, The kingdom is more than promise. It is realization. We look forward to the glorious consummation of that which we have only tasted. Okay, I'll read that one more time. The kingdom is more than promise. It is realization. We look forward to the glorious consummation of that which we have only tasted. And so it is with us who have received the glorious salvation offered in the gospel. Miraculously, we are not only given the gifts of the kingdom, but we are also given the privilege of helping expand the kingdom across the earth with Christ. We get to take part in the age to come, breaking in to this present moment. But if we're not careful, we'll miss it. We'll assume that it hasn't happened to us or around us, that we haven't actually taken part in this. We'll focus on the one way the kingdom manifests itself and we'll miss the rest. Maybe as we talked about before, you've seen the kingdom breaking through in significant ways already. And if you have, that's wonderful. And so we have, we've come to a more robust definition of what the kingdom of God is in its simplicity. It is God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. But we also need to make sure that we end our class with a robust understanding also of how the kingdom manifests itself in the world. How do we know when we've seen it? What are we supposed to point the world to when they ask us what the kingdom of God is? How do we answer that question? Where do we point them? What example do we have? Well, as I said a moment ago in the charismatic tradition, we used to believe that the advancement of the kingdom came down to miraculous moments and the gifts of the Spirit. But the kingdom of God cannot be limited to those things. It is the whole realm of God. The Gospel of Mark in chapter 1, verses 14 and 15 says that when Jesus announces that the kingdom is at hand, he immediately calls people to repentance and faith in the Gospel. He has brought the kingdom with him because he's the king. And this passage tells us that where we see repentance and forgiveness, the kingdom of God is active. Imagine someone outside the kingdom watching the true ramifications of repentance. Just try to think about what that looks like to someone who has no grid for the kingdom, no grid for God's way. Through repentance, we turn from self-sufficiency, self-promotion, the need of worldly accolades, and we pick up our cross, 
and we serve those around us. Well, the world is hell-bent on promoting itself, and every person, every human person, wants themselves to be promoted above others. But the kingdom of God is completely opposed to that. The kingdom of God is about admitting wrongdoings, according to Jesus. It's about taking discipline where it's needed. It's about serving one another. It's about lifting others above ourselves. It's about being willing to die and love our, die for, excuse me, and love our enemies. These things reveal the activity of the kingdom in our midst. So when someone serves you, instead of serving themselves, it doesn't matter if it's a parent, if it's a sibling, roommate, a co-worker, a stranger. The kingdom of God is at work. Where someone recognizes their sin and repents, receives Christ's forgiveness, the kingdom of God is at work. Additionally, in Luke's account of Jesus in the synagogue, we read that Jesus takes up the scroll and he reads Isaiah 61. Notice what Jesus says is going to happen now that his kingdom has come. So Luke 4, 17 to 21 says this. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The activity of the kingdom coming to earth, as defined by Jesus here, is preaching the gospel, caring for those in need, freeing people from bondage. To Jesus, freedom healing and proclamation are all pure manifestations of the kingdom of God on the earth. At the same time, Jesus does not explicitly speak about how people will respond to this kingdom coming. Considering people's response and this, the discouragement that can come around this must be viewed in light of the reality that we are living in the now and not yet kingdom. When we are out there in the world, living for the kingdom to come, functioning in ways to see his will done on earth as it is in heaven, we will pray and not see healing. We will comfort people, but not provide hope. We will feed, and people will still starve. 
now while living in the in-between. We see these situations that will not be so in heaven. God's victory and the kingdom are still in a state of not yet in this present age. That can be very discouraging. But if we can hold the tension of the now and not yet, if we can hold the tension of seek first the kingdom of God, knowing that not everything will happen exactly as we want it to because we're not in heavenly realities yet. It will allow us to wade through some of the difficulty without receiving all of the, dis the discouragement that can come. Now, I, I also want to talk about one of the keys to understanding the kingdom of God that we often don't discuss and rarely see as a manifestation of God's kingdom when we think about it, and that's judgment. So if we go back to some of the beliefs of the Jewish people concerning the coming of Christ, we see that they believe that you must either bend a knee or perish. The reality is they're not wrong. We get so used to the picture of Jesus as a servant, which isn't wrong, and we should never take our tension away from that we forget something we're meant to hold at the same time, which is the picture of Jesus coming as the judge of all humanity. We have to hold his first coming in the incarnation with, it, with his second coming in the book of Revelation which is called Perusia. He comes again, and there is judgment, and there is salvation. In the kingdom of God, there is justice. All of us will answer for the life that we have lived. Some of us are covered with the blood of Christ, and his passion has become our payment because we've repented and believed. Hebrews 10, 19-22 says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clear from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. This is the reality of those who have repented and believed. But for others of us, we're not covered by his blood because we've rejected him and his way, and we will be judged in the final days. Matthew 7, 13 to 23 says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes? or figs from thistles. 
so every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Of course, this is a look at the final judgment. It's not always easy to look at that as part of his kingdom, to realize that a part of what Jesus does and what Jesus brings is justice. But Jesus doesn't just speak of a final judgment and justice in the end. He also gives us perspective that his justice is something that can be worked out in our daily lives. Remember, he's come to free the oppressed, he said, to heal the blind. When injustice lives, Christ looks to bring judgment. Thus, when we see justice done for wrongs committed, we must see this as the kingdom of God at work. This brings a little more uh, depth to the prayer, your kingdom come. Because when we pray this prayer, we pray for healing repentance, hope, comfort, and peace. But we also pray for judgment to come upon the heads of those that, opp- that oppose Christ. This should be sobering to us. This should help wake us up to our sinful selves. We shouldn't be able to pray these things lightly or easily. We must pray these prayers graciously and even fearfully, knowing that we deserve the same punishment, but for Christ. So to recap, I believe that the kingdom that, or sorry, that kingdom theology has been misrepresented in the church in many ways. And it's usually because of our presuppositions. For example, if we do not believe that the spirit moves in power on the earth today, then the kingdom of God does not have anything to do with the miraculous. Or if we believe that the miraculous is the whole point of Christianity, then we can miss the fact that all our actions that are in line with God's will are acts of the kingdom of God on the earth. To fall into either of these ditches will lead us to some level of disenfranchisement with the activity of God in the world. We will think at some point, God is just not doing enough. 
that he's not active enough, we'll miss him, his presence, his activity in the world. The balance we've been seeking to find today is that we would live lives as if feeding the poor, repenting of sin, and comforting a hurting person is as much an act of the kingdom as casting out demons and seeing the sick healed. Neither being more truly kingdom ministry than the other. I think this brings me to my final point, which is that the reason the church, in my opinion, and it is a humble one, but it feels to me that the reason the church has struggled to teach and hold a proper Christocentric and scriptural doctrine of the kingdom of God is because of our democratic societal leanings. So what do I mean by this? And it's actually just a word of warning uh, to us all, not a, a judgment or condemnation to be heaped on us. If we have ingrained in us that the only way to function as a society is through the people leading, we are believing that the only true way of functioning is opposed to the way the kingdom of God works. The kingdom of God is not a democracy. If if we could use a, a really intentionally stark contrast to it, it's closer to a dictatorship. Thankfully, we have a benevolent king that loves us and wants to do what is good and right for us. But it does not mean that he takes instructions from us. We don't give advice. We don't vote him in. We don't say whether he gets authority or not. The truth is we give him the chance to judge us and see us as righteous or not righteous. We say yes to him or we say no to him. There's choice, of course, but he's in charge. So I use the term dictator to be stark, not because it's perfect. It's not true. He's a king. That's slightly different. And I understand that. But in the kingdom of God, it is a kingdom. It is a kingdom in the truest sense of the word, in the, in the perfect sense of the word. It is the place and way of life where Christ is the king ruling over all. My point in saying this is actually not at all to make a commentary on Canadian political structure. I know everyone's mind kind of goes into politics when I say these words. I don't want you to do that because that's not the point. I'm saying that the political structure and our societal structure and our independent nature of the de democratic society has influenced us in a way that goes far beyond political and now begins to make us believe that we have way more of a say than we actually do in how the kingdom functions. I'm not in any way calling democracy wrong, nor am I making a statement in favor of some other type of political structure. This is not political. This is about Jesus being king in his kingdom. What I'm saying is that the church, the people of God, 
acting democratically in Christ's kingdom is wrong. We must do as Paul tells us and give to Caesar what is Caesar's, meaning our leadership that's over us in each country, whether evil or holy, should be honored in the way that we're meant to honor them because God has asked us to do that. We cannot act, though, as if the church and the kingdom of God should work in this sort of way. The church is, in fact, a part of the society of the kingdom of God, and thus, she has a king who oversees her and cares for her and provides for her and rules her. This king, of course, is Christ and Christ alone. It is not for us, the people, to demand or decide what is right, wrong, necessary, or unnecessary. I believe that one of the reasons we have struggles to hold on to orthodox theology regarding the kingdom of God is because we are inherently opposed to kingship. We don't like being told what to do and how to do it. But to be in the kingdom is to say that Jesus has the ultimate reign, that he does get to say, that he does get to tell us what to do and how to do it. It's not accidental that we currently live in this reality of the now, now and not yet kingdom. It's by design. It's God's choice to have us living in this state of shadow and glimpses. And so the fact that if we wrestle with that, if we find it difficult to know what to do with this concept of king and not to totally understand it, it's okay. We're here for a reason. God hasn't been absent from our history that's led us here. But maybe we should begin to ask the question, what good could come from us being completely surrendered to the way of Christ's kingdom that we've not yet received? What could we be missing by not submitting to Christ fully? As we're told that we must. Do we trust God enough to really give him everything? Do we trust him enough to allow him to challenge some of the deepest parts of who we believe we are? Maybe your honest answer to that question is no. I don't think actually I do. So maybe you could ask him for courage. The courage to trust him. And if you do trust him, and you're more sitting here going, I, I think I do trust him like that. I just don't know what to do. Then maybe with complete confidence in his kingly authority, you could ask him where you haven't been submitted as you ought to be. Where are the parts of you that are still in opposition to his kingly reign? 
What parts of you that if Christ says do this, then I'm out. Where are those parts of you? Then, when we completely trust in Christ's kingship, the circumstances around us that are not yet on earth as it's supposed to be in heaven won't cause us to lose faith. But it'll actually beckon us to pray ever more fervently for the coming of his kingdom. So this is all I have to teach today, but I wanted to take some time at the end to talk a little more and give opportunity for you guys to ask questions or to even push back on anything. Um, I have to admit when I read through my notes, this is a class I wrote originally in uh, 2015 and I didn't actually uh, teach this class for a few years. And so I came back to these notes after a few years off, which one is, always horrendous because you can see all of your mistakes, uh, but also is, uh, was quite um, shocked by some of the stuff, even uh, as the flow was going and realizing, oh, you kind of have to hit on some of the individualistic, some of the way that our culture tells us to function um, that I think is becoming more prevalent through the pandemic. Um, and so in any way that, that, that this stuff in any of it feels, um, off and you have questions please ask in any way that you feel like you'd like to uh, discuss or push back feel free to um, but just want to kind of leave it open for some discussion if there's a need rob one of the uh outcomes of the uh recent elections in the states they're brought back this point i've heard it several times before i i, I know it it's quoted by chuck colson but it says that the kingdom of god will not arrive on air force one <laughs> yeah. And we sometimes think that our leaders should be doing this because they should be, you know, Christ Christians or whatever uh, sort of a thing. And so it is more up to us to bring the kingdom where we have that yeah. opportunity to reach out to others rather than uh, placing our trust in someone or something else that yeah. way. So just being doing our part. Absolutely. Yeah. Wholeheartedly with you on that. Yeah. I think the church is being called to rewriting our understanding of how we're meant to function in society. Not, and I don't mean about just about politics. I mean, just actually how we function in society, the way that people see us, how we act, the way we work with other people. Some of you guys are actually great at this knowing some even little bits of how things have gone in, in business and workplaces and school and, and all different sorts of things. Some of you guys do this really well, but I also think some of you don't even know that you do it well. Don't, don't even totally catch that. Oh, this is actually a miraculous thing. God has done in you to teach you these things. And we all need to then carry this uh, as you talked, as you said, Stuart, it's actually on us to carry that, that into the society and to live differently. 
in a long time ago in my uh, learning, uh, very early learning about things of the kingdom, it, it was that God had given the church to show the world how to live. And I have had that run around in my head every year, most every month sort of a thing of how the church could be showing the world how to live in areas of finance and child rearing and yeah. um, the reason to be even, you know. And uh, so that is a phrase that helps me a lot. And uh, waiting for more evidence of that, shall we say, uh, as we are in this nearing the end part of the kingdom, uh, the, you know, now and not yet, but getting closer. Yeah. So that's a, a yeah, it's good, Stuart. I, I, I agree. It's, I think I've talked about this. I, I know I said it last year in one of our classes, um, for those of you that were in phase one last year, but I was really impacted in a similar vein by an anti right phrase, what he, where he talks about the medicine of Israel. And the medicine of Israel was that they um, saw themselves as opposed and separate, not as uh, separate and example. Uh, they were meant to actually be an example to the entire earth and cause people to be drawn into God. Um, and, uh, and now the church has taken that up as well. Um, and, but again, again I, I think the story of Israel should be a statement to us. You can be the people that are supposed to do that and do it really badly. And so we just can't be naive to the fact that, um, living how we want is not actually going to be living according to the kingdom. Anyone else? Any other questions or thoughts or statements? So just kind of as a last thing to encourage you guys, I think this, this part of the prayer, this your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, to keep that in your mind through this week, to pray that consistently. But I want you to pray it uh, with a sober mind. I want you to pray it recognizing that when, when you ask for the kingdom to come, um, it should be with some fear and trepidation. The, the story of Christ coming again is, is not, um, if it's easy for you to read and it brings, and it brings um, if you see yourself as the righteous and that there's, there's, there's nothing that you will be judged for and there's no issues with you and you've done all of this well, just be careful you're not a Pharisee. That's what the Pharisees thought too. They kept the rules. They did the right thing. And so because of that, they didn't have to worry. And Jesus' response to them is, well, I guess it's too bad for you because uh, I came for those that are sick. I came for those that are in need. I came for the sinners. I came for the oppressed. I came, that's who I came for. So when Christ comes again, it's not that we want to be uh, sinning. <laughs> It's the one we want to recognize we are sinners and living in repentance, if that makes sense. 
So I just think, you know, praying this prayer consistently, but praying it graciously. You know, I, I've taught this before. And one of, the, one of the conversations that came up when I taught it last time, honestly, was um, it was like, a, well, I'm glad that the Lord is going to uh, deal justly with our prime minister. That was the statement made. And we had to have a long conversation about that because that actually broke my heart. Because he will deal justly with our prime minister, just like he will with all of us. But that sounds way more like a Pharisee than that sounds like Jesus. The only people that Jesus actually talks that way about are the people that should know better and act like they're too righteous to have, to, or that they're more righteous than bad people. That's who he talks that way about. He doesn't talk that way about sinners. He doesn't talk that way about the lost. And so our, as you pray this prayer, I, my hope is that it would actually draw something up in you that would be full of compassion, full of care, full of love, that you'll remember our, our reading from Matthew, uh, that Matthew chapter seven, where it talks about you will know them by your fruit. What's the fruit of in your life? Is it full of thistles and thorns? Are you prickly? <laughs> it's not the way Christ intended you to be. So when judgment comes up, allow the Lord to deal with it. Corinne, if you have something to say, go ahead. Um, like, yeah, I pray the Lord's Prayer every morning and I've been into the habit of um, just slowing it way, way, way down. So every phrase, repeat every little phrase, like, one times, two times, three times, and and that gets really scary because as I'm as I'm repeating it, praying it, and I think about I let it impact me that little phrase, "Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven." And as I as I break it down and repeat each little portion over and over again, it's like, do I really want to be praying this? You know, it's, it's really scary. Yeah. And um, I mean, but it's good. It's a reality. It's a reality check. And I've, uh, as of late, um, can complain or, or um, I mean, there's blessings about living out in the country, but part of my, part of my struggle is as a, as a Christian, how can I be salt and light when I never see anybody? You know, yeah. when I'm stuck out here and then I find when I, uh, I'm on my exercise machine and I'm praying this Lord's prayer you know, to see segments and I'm going over it and over it. And then like the spirit of the Lord says, how about if you just do it in your own little insula? So I have my husband and our, our youngest son, Avery living here. Oh yeah. And then, then that's, oh, I didn't really want to hear that, <laughs> you know? So, um, it is really good. 
these things that you say about uh, democracy and dictatorship, it's like, yeah, can I really do what Christ did? Can I enter into each day without an agenda, without any expectations other than God's? It's like, wow, that's really, that can be really scary. It can be really freeing, but it can be really scary. So um, both sides of these things are, are, are good, but they're hard. Yeah, that's you're totally right. Absolutely, I, to to pray soberly is really important, though, and I'm glad to hear that process in your uh, daily life because that's actually, I think, how God calls us to pray. Um, and yeah, it's so necessary. Yeah, go ahead, Kathy. Um, so, uh. There's lots of confidence verses in the Bible. Like, I can't think of any off the top of my head, but, you know, be confident in the Lord and, and you know, you're baptized, you're saved. And then, okay, then in the next breath, it's like, don't get too confident. Don't think you're all that good. Like, how do you, how do you balance that out so you're not, um, you know, coming down on yourself to know, to say, well, I'm just a sinner and... Oh, but I've been saved, but don't get too caught up in that. Like sometimes it gets a little hard to, I don't know, to figure out, to balance. Yeah. I, I think that you are, you're explaining every Christian's necessary wrestle. So what's wrong is when we don't wrestle with that. Paul does it in scripture. Paul talks about himself in really saintly ways and then talks about himself in really sinful ways. And he doesn't seem to say that one is more right than the other. Um, I think it's when you don't recognize both parts. And, and, and probably even more importantly, though, than that is um, who our focus is on. So what happens is, is that we, we should notice our sinfulness because, because we're not walking in the ways of Christ. We'll notice that if our view is of Christ and we can see we're not following him. If we're watching ourselves, paying attention to ourselves, paying attention to our circumstances, paying attention to only the things that are around us and not actually looking to Christ, then it's actually harder for us to know, are we sinful? Are we saintly? Where are we? Well, the Bible says, you know, really good things about us. So I guess I'm saintly. Well, it also says I'm a sinner. Well, I guess I'm, you know, sinner. And we can be in this back and forth, but we can be inwardly focused we have to be upwardly focused. We have to be focused on him. And in that, uh, we will be, we will recognize our sinfulness, but we will do it with joy and thanksgiving because of repentance and forgiveness and the sacrifice of Christ and our freedom from that sin. So we don't live in the sin, but it also should, it should feel weighty when we sin because we know this isn't our real, that's not us. We've been rescued from this. Why, why do we still struggle with this? So frustrating. Yeah, that should be frustrating. That's a good thing that that feels frustrating. But don't, don't stay there, right? Repentance leads to forgiveness, which leads to life in Christ, fully unified with him again. And we live in that saintly way. Sin, ah, uh, again, right? So it is, you're, you're explaining the back and forth that I don't think we're supposed to get out of because I think that's like we had up here, the now and not yet. That's the personal reality of the now and not yet. 
it's it is a it's a balance that is only due to us living in the constraints of time uh, that won't be true uh, one day, but we just need to pray for God's grace every day between to get there. Okay. <laughs> that, that help. No, that helps. That helps. That that helps. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. I think that the wrestle is good. The wrestle is good. Anyone else, any other thoughts before we go? Just another part of that wrestle is on the one side of the coin, we're sinners saved by grace. On the other side of the coin, we're sons and daughters of the king. Yeah. You know, we're heirs. It's like, Amazing. But we're living our life in the middle of both of those. Yeah. So it's crazy. It is crazy. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, it's not an easy balance. And I think that that's God has grace on us, knowing that we can't live that balance perfectly. Um, and that's, that's okay. It's, it really is. Well, um, I'd love for you guys to just take away some of the questions I asked at the end and um, spend some time this week meditating on them. You know, where is your trust? Do you have full trust in God um, currently in, in his ways? Uh, are you worried about what he's going to say? And so you don't totally trust him and don't know, want to know what he's going to ask of you. Um, if that's the case, ask him for full, complete trust. Uh, the courage to trust him. If you do trust him, if you feel like as much as I can tell, I, I do trust him, um, but I don't know where I'm not submitted, then ask him, where are the ways that you're not submitted to his rule and reign? The, the places of your life that are not submitted to his kingship. And just take some time to focus on that. Journal, write on it, pray into it. You don't have to write anything if you don't do that just pray into it let him let him search your heart and then take time in the week just to pray this part of the lord's prayer to really slowly pray this prayer soberly pray it knowing all that it actually means all that it actually calls us to but also what you're you're requesting of him in the world and hopefully this week it'll be a, a time of trust building put more of our trust in him. Rob? Yeah. Um, Presley's here and she's wanting me to ask on her behalf here. Yes. <laughs> what does what does submitted look like? Like practically, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, I guess. Yes, practically. Sure. Uh, it will look different depending on the circumstance, but I think that it is... Uh, doing what you know he's called you to do. If it's about practical, like the actual doing of submission is about, okay, God has called me to do this. By being submitted to that, I will go and do it. 
um, it's being submitted to his will leads to action. And, um, and so I think that that just means that if you know God's calling you to something uh, and you've been saying no, or you've been putting it off, or you've been unsure of what to do because you're not sure how much you trust him or whatever else, that would be a time to pray for courage and then to step out in faith and to follow him and to do what's, what you're being called to do. Is that enough of, a, of an answer? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. He says okay. yes. He says yes. Okay. You can uh, look up the uh, Fanny Crosby hymn and uh, you'll find that perfect submission. All is at rest. I and my Savior am happy and blessed. And there's several, several verses to it. It's uh, my hope is built on nothing less. And uh, you'll find lots of phrases there that you can really get into your meditator and they are very helpful. Yeah, that's good. You know, Stuart brings up a good point. We have this um, beautiful um, connection to like scripture put to, so we talk a lot about liturgy and kind of teaching you guys into liturgy. Hymns are, are sung liturgies. And so to, you know, getting into some of the old hymns and singing them and learning them and having them play through your mind uh, is a really, really important and, and blessed part of discipleship. Um, you know, it was, a, it was a shock to me. Be Thou My Vision is one of like the oldest songs known. Like it's like, it's super, super old. One of the, one of the oldest uh, hymns that the, that the church has. And it's just such a beautiful picture um, of, uh, you know, just, putting your trust in him and wanting him to be central for you. And so um, just to jump off what Stuart said, you know, take some, take the opportunity and jump back into some old uh, hymnal music and, uh, and see the encouragement that could come from that. And some of the shaping that can come from that as well. It helps us meditate on his word, as he said. Okay, guys, well, I'm going to let you go. Um, bless you. Uh, another good week. I uh, can't wait to read all of your reflections on Slack on Wednesday. Um, I, I read them Wednesday night whenever they go up. So I'm really excited for all the ones you'll be posting this week um, and uh, all the responses and the, my, the loving conversation that happens between all of you on there. Uh, it's wonderful. So um, can't wait for it. Um, uh, Kathy, do you have another uh, question or statement or are you just laughing no, at me? You're cheeky. <laughs> I'm trying to be because encouragement doesn't help and I have no consequences for you. So um, it's not like it's tied to your salvation or anything. Uh, so I just am going to make jokes about it and see if that encourages you at all to, um, to do it. And I've already seen somebody shake their head no. So uh, that won't, uh, yeah, you laughed immediately. You know who it was. Uh, so hopefully uh, calling you out in this other way will help the process. But uh, bless you guys. Uh, it's, it is always a privilege to be here doing this with you. I wish so badly we were in person. Uh, and I'm praying that we do to get the opportunity to be back in the room together again. Um, but even without that, I can't tell you how uh, blessed I am to be able to, uh, to do this, um, even though it's not in the perfect way or the way that we, any of us would choose. Um, the fact that we can continue to seek the Lord together is just such a gift. 
Um, so thank you for seeking the Lord. Uh, it's honestly, it really honestly is an encouragement to me to see you guys put your faith in Jesus. Uh, it's uh, such a vital part of my own faith is to walk with other people uh, as they choose Jesus too. So uh, bless you and praying for you. Uh, truly do love you guys and uh, hope you have a great week. And uh, as I said, we'll uh, read all your reflections on Wednesday. See you guys. Bless you too.